0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: In Owning the Secular, Religious Symbols, Culture Wars, Western Fragility, published by Rutledge in 2021, Matt Sheedy examines three case studies dealing with religious symbols and cultural identity. Drawing on theories of discourse analysis and ideology critique, the study calls attention to an evolution in how secularism, nationalism, and multiculturalism in Europe and North America are debated and understood as competing groups contest and rearrange the meaning of these terms. This is especially true in the digital age as online cultures have transformed how information is spread, how we imagine our communities, build alliances, and produce shared meaning. From recent attempts to prohibit religious symbols in public to Trump's so-called Muslim bans to growing disenchantment with the promise of digital media, owning the secular turns the lens to how nation-states, organizations, and individuals attempt to own the secular, to manage cultural differences, shore up group identity, and stake a claim to some version of Western values, amidst the growing uncertainties of neoliberal capitalism. In our conversation, we discussed the secular, secularization, and secularism, the role of social media in contemporary cultural wars, anxieties about veiling practices in secular societies. The Use of Law in Governing Religion, The New Atheist Movement, Ex-Muslims, and How Media Shapes Public Understanding of Muslims. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And now, here's my conversation with Matt Sheedy about Owning the Secular, Religious Symbols, Culture Wars, Western Fragility. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Very good. How are you? Great. Yeah, I was, I'm excited to talk to you about your, your book here, Owning the Secular. Um, before we get into this, uh, which I must say, I, I really think is a great book in the sense that you synthesize a lot of information and make it really digestible, so to speak. Um, so I, I hope people will, will check it out. And I think it would probably re- work really well, even in some classes, uh, if not in, in itself. Uh, maybe some of the sections, but we'll we'll get into those details uh, later. For now, can you can you tell us a little bit about um, your background, uh, tr- your training, influences, mentors, moments that shaped you as a as a scholar, and uh, the types of approaches you take?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess I'd start by saying that my undergraduate university career. Uh, coincided with the September 11th attacks. And so that was a very formative experience for me. Um, It persuaded me to do a major in the study of religion and then go on to do a master's uh, and a PhD. And throughout my uh, training, I was very, very interested in questions of religion in the public sphere, religion in conflict. I also, in the mid 2000s, became very interested in um, the rise of popular atheism or new atheism. And I was particularly interested in how those types of movements would often utilize Islam as an other or an enemy that they could use to reinforce certain Western secular values. And so those were pretty formative experiences for me that come out in the book in a number of ways. Um, My PhD work uh, with Dr. Uh, Ken McKendrick at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg focused on Jürgen Habermas's theory of religion in the public sphere, which became a central part of his work uh, after the September 11th attacks. And so it was very much grounded in those types of questions. And I guess I would also add that throughout my academic training and now into my Uh, teaching and research career, um, I've really been interested in questions of identity politics, culture wars, the kind of things that really get people riled up. Increasingly, I've been interested too in the effects of social media, digital media, digital cultures, online cultures, online movements, and how they're changing the ways that we think uh, and interact. So there's a lot of that contained in this particular book. Um, And I guess the last thing I'll say is that When thinking about culture wars involving Islam in a Western context, I was really, really informed by fairly recent controversies involving Muslim women, involving veiling, and how that rose to the level of a moral panic, how it rose to the level of something that some people perceived as a threat to Western values and Western civilization. There's a number of instances of that that I talk about in the book. And so trying to think about how Western cultures or Euro-Western or Euro-American cultures tend to navigate those sorts of issues, especially involving Muslims and Islam, uh, has really come to animate a lot of my work um, in that post 9-11 period.
2: Yeah, it's uh, you can see all these kind of um, you know somewhat unrelated threads come together really well in this book, um, and I'm wondering if you could start a little bit with uh, the title, um, "Owning the Secular." What 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 do you mean here in this phrasing of owning? Uh, can you tease out what you mean here for us and uh, tell us how it relates to the analysis of your book?
1: Yeah, sure. So. The term owning the secular is something that I use in in, in two particular ways. Um, For scholars who are trained in the study of religion, um, it's probably pretty well known that debates over the meaning of religion, debates over the meaning of secularism is a really hot potato. It's something that people talk about a lot and there's no clear consensus on what exactly that means. So for example, scholars will in recent decades, talk about how the very concept of religion tends to have a very western-centric, very Christian-centric kind of idea behind it, and it often doesn't reflect the ways in which a variety of distinct communities, including Muslim communities, indigenous communities, Hindu communities, and so on and so forth, understand and relate to what they might call religion or something analogous, right? So thinking about what this term means in different contexts and thinking about what secularism as religion's opposite or binary pair means is very much a front and center in this work and what I'm thinking about. And so when some scholars make a very clear definition about what they mean by secularism, you know, here here are the terms, here's my definition, here's how I'm going to use it. And they follow that process, for better or worse, they are, in a sense, owning their definition, right? They're making their terms very, very clear. And that's something, generally speaking, that I think works pretty well. On the other hand, sometimes scholars will talk about religion or secularism, and they won't make their definitions very clear at all. And that can lead to all sorts of problems. It can really get into uh, murky waters when that happens. So, I really want to signal in the sense of of owning the secular, uh, the importance of of being clear in terms of our definitions. The other sense of owning the secular is very much tied to online culture and culture wars. I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with language that you uh, sometimes come across uh, online, especially to to sell certain uh, video clips, say on YouTube, for example. Uh, Clips will read like, you know, so-and-so owns this person, you know, in a debate or discussion meaning that they have um, somehow uh, conquered them or humiliated them. In this sense of uh, owning someone else very much seems to me to be um, an increasing issue when we're talking about online communication and online cultures, where the ways in which social media is often designed, the way in which it incentivizes certain types of behavior tends towards people manipulating others, not necessarily engaging critically with others, trying to humiliate them, trying to prove them wrong in some way, as opposed to debating them, thinking with them, really reasoning or rationalizing what the issue at stake is, and so on and so forth, right? And so I wanted to capture those two meanings of the term owning to try to navigate this terrain of religion and secularism, what it means, how it's being used in different contexts, and how we can pick apart this these these really complicated ideas.
2: Um, the other part of your title, of course, uh, the secular, and uh, you you tackle the secular, secularization, secularism, post secularism. Uh, you kind of offer a sweeping overview of uh, these kind of interrelated topics in the in the first chapter. Um, so. Uh, how, how does this genealogy help us understand your project? And what would you say are some of the key moments in this scholarship on these terms?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, well, there's a there's a lot of technicalities um, uh, to this question. I don't want to get into the weeds of it too much. So uh, I guess what I would say is when thinking about secularism, there's a there's a couple of terms that get thrown around that a really important. One in the study of religion, broadly speaking, is the idea of secularization. And the way that this story usually goes is that so in many Euro-Western countries uh, and Anglo-American spaces, uh, there was a tendency uh, in the 1960s to notice that fewer and fewer people were, for example, attending church, um, explicit references to Christianity or God were becoming less and less, and there was a some, there, there was an assumption that these so-called secularizing trends would not only continue to happen uh, over time, over decades, but would also spread throughout the world in such a way that societies all over the globe would eventually become not irreligious but rather less religious and where the idea of a separation of church and state where the idea that um people would increasingly keep their religion to themselves and in the private realm would be the order of the day and so when the soviet union collapsed uh, around 1990 sociologists and other scholars of religion started to rethink a lot of these ideas because it became apparent that once state secularism and the Soviet model started to dissolve, uh, a number of communities started to regroup or reorganize in part on the basis of a shared religious identity. And this caught scholars' attention and they started to rethink uh, these older models. Now, importantly, when we're talking about Islam and perceptions of Islam in the West, it was also around this time where the concept clash of civilizations really came to the forefront. As some of your listeners might know, uh, this was a term that was coined by Bernard Lewis in 1990 in an essay that appeared in The Atlantic called The Roots of Muslim Rage. Uh, The article itself was just as problematic as that title sounds. And it was picked up by the Harvard political theorist uh, Samuel Huntington in a 1993 essay called The Clash of Civilizations with a question mark at the end. And he later turned that into a book in 1996 where he proposed that there were a number of competing or clashing civilizations, one of which was Islamic civilization that he theorized would become the next great enemy or great Satan um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in terms of uh, you know who, who was in opposition to the Western world, the United States, and so forth. And after the September 11th attacks, um, popular media picked up, Huntington and Lewis's term, the clash of civilizations, and they would reproduce it over and over in various broadcasts. And so this this idea that there was a clash of civilizations between quote-unquote Islam and the West really came into vogue in the post-911 period. But what often doesn't get discussed in that more popular media context is that there is a very, very clear link between the idea of secularization. The idea that societies were, quote unquote, modernizing, moving away from religious identity and that they were modern, they were reasonable and rational and civilized if they did not have a strong religious presence or outward forms of religious practice under a Western Protestant model. And so when this idea of clash of civilizations comes into the popular imagination, uh, it's very much measuring this sort of Western Protestant model of what a civilized society ought to look like against this other imagined version of Islam and Islamic societies as somehow the opposite or contrary to that. And so part of what I'm doing in this first chapter is trying to set the table for a very, very influential understanding of secularism and that other term secularization, how it was understood throughout the latter part of the 20th century, how it informed conversations in the post 9 11 period, and how since that time, discussions about secularism as a form of state governance, that is to say, a form in which states like Canada, the US, Germany, where I'm currently living and working from, Try to organize or manage people from different communities, including religious communities in their midst in such a way where they can get along, they can reduce conflict and so on and so forth. And so in tracing that history and tracing those genealogies, um, I try to paint a broad picture of where we're at, so to speak, in our thinking when it comes to what secularism means, how it functions in scholarship, how it functions for people in popular conversations, uh, and importantly, how it has transformed over time, particularly in online spaces, which move a lot more rapidly than scholarship does, and often take words, take ideas and concepts like secularism or atheism, and make them their own, so to speak, in ways where they, they they don't necessarily resemble uh, uh, what, uh, what people commonly associate with those terms.
2: Yeah, and this this part of the book, I think would work really well um, with students introducing this concept uh, or these kind of interrelated concepts um, in complex but like very legible ways. So uh, for, for listeners that want to incorporate ideas about secularism into classes on Islam, this might this might work really well. Um, the other piece here, of course, um, is you, you zoom into ideas about cultural wars, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, I mean, you, you've kind of already gestured at this, but uh, how contemporary cultural wars line up with uh, assumptions about secular reason and, and, and how secular societies operate. Right, right. So,
1: I mean, I guess one other thing that's that's important to say uh, at this point in time is that Secularism uh, as a concept uh, tends to refer to at least three particular things. Although if you dug into the weeds, you could definitely find a lot more meanings. But the three ways that I focus on uh, um, in this book tend to revolve around political secularism, which is to say the way in which nation states Will invoke the idea of secularism as a part of their national identity, right? So um, France, for example, defines itself as a secular state. The Canadian province of Quebec defines itself as secular, and they use the French term les cités. Um, While Canada doesn't often outwardly describe itself as secular, it's often painted as a secular state, similarly, but for different reasons. The United States does so, and so on and so forth. And so At the state level, political secularism is an attempt to, as I mentioned before, manage cultural differences between competing communities, uh, communities with uh, different sets of values by creating what is often framed as a neutral set of ideas and values that everyone can share despite their quote unquote religious differences. And one of the real sticking points when it comes to this idea of political secularism as something that is neutral is the critique that if we're talking about Euro-Western states like Canada or the U.S., uh, they, of course, have a very Christian and very Protestant-centric understanding of religion, Uh, in some cases Catholic, if you're talking about different regions of those countries. And many critics will point out that even though secularism claims to be neutral within these states, it nonetheless tends to privilege people's, people whose cultural backgrounds um, refer to customs and rituals and cultural practices that are a lot more familiar in those societies. Usually those relating to Christianity, as opposed to Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, uh, and so on and so forth. And so, When thinking about secularism in our contemporary context, you often hear this idea of state neutrality being invoked, when the reality is that certain groups are always privileged over others. And one of the ways we see this play out is with controversies and conflicts over religious symbols. Um, This is certainly a familiar thing that has happened Uh, over the last couple of decades in France. And more recently, as I discuss in the second chapter of the book, uh, Secularism and the Veil, um, it's something that's been happening in the Canadian province of Quebec for around 15 years or so now, where a number of bills have been introduced in order to restrict certain quote unquote religious symbols in the public sphere. And I tend to frame this as a type of culture war something that engages with people's own tribal identities, uh, something that tends to be very politically motivated in creating a wedge issue, something that gets people riled up, that forces them to uh, to, to, to pick particular sides, and that doesn't really necessarily get at what's going on underneath the surface when you're just confronting it you know, in, in, in the news media or in popular culture. And so that intersection between political secularism, uh, between culture wars and how religious symbols often get used as a political football uh, to arguably distract from deeper issues, uh, to divide, that's really something I'm trying to get at in the subtitle. Uh, and in part of the book, where I where I look at these culture wars and uh, how they um, how they function to um, not only distract but also reshape um, how we think about these categories of, of religion versus culture versus secularism, and we can get into to more
2: of that as we uh, as we go along. Sure. Yeah, and uh, you have a whole chapter that focuses on questions of the relationship between secularism and and the veil, um, and you you take us through some interesting case studies. But b- before getting into the case studies, uh, c- can you tell us some of the common tropes about veiling practices that that you found in uh, you know quote unquote secular societies? Sure. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I'm I'm actually working on a book. Uh, Right now that looks at uh, media representations of of Muslims and uh, Islam in the West, so it's a topic that's that's very much of interest to me. Um, And I definitely dig into some of that that territory uh, in this book and in that second chapter, uh, in particular, and there's a fair bit of scholarship on this and I don't have time to go into uh, to all of it. Um, But I would say that, for the most part, when we're talking about Islam or any religion for that matter um public discussions public representations whether we're talking about you know images we see in newspaper memes uh stuff uh stuff on the nightly news or in in tv shows movies documentaries these sorts of things uh it only tends to really scratch the surface when we're considering the immense complexity of different religious or different muslim cultures Um, cultural practices, different types of theology, different schools of thought, different interpretations, um, different ideas between uh, uh, insiders or Muslims themselves over what they think about issues such as veiling, uh, to say nothing of, you know, uh, more specific doctrinal practices that most Western audiences probably wouldn't be familiar with. What I would argue we tend to see are images reproduced that tend to be sensationalistic, they tend to sell, uh, and that often fall along uh, what Ma- uh, Mahmoud Mamdani calls a, a good Muslim, bad Muslim model or, or, or paradigm. And so bad Muslims, not surprisingly, and, and certainly in the post 9 11 period, tend to get associated with violence, barbarism, terrorism, the sorts of things that uh, Edward Said talked about in his very influential book, uh, Orientalism, back in uh, 1978. It's also the type of thing that uh, Jack Shaheen uh, covers in his uh, great, uh, I believe 2006 book, Real Bad Arabs, uh, which was turned into a documentary. The documentary is 2006. I think the book might have been uh, a little bit earlier, but nonetheless, Shaheen covers over a thousand films of Hollywood reproductions of Arabs and Muslims, looking at a set of familiar tropes that really have come to represent or stand in for Arabs and Muslims uh, in the broader Western imagination. So in addition to some of those tropes that I mentioned regarding Muslims as terroristic, violent, barbarous, and so on and so forth. You have earlier depictions that were familiar in the 18th and 19th century uh, that often focused on harems, that often focused on this idea of the Orient or the Muslim world as something that was exotic and sensual, uh, something that could be seen as the other or the opposite of Western Europe or broader Western parts of the world. When you move into the present period, and I'm skipping over a a lot of history and a lot of images here, but when you move into the present period, one thing that really stands out is images of Muslim women and images of veiling. And I would argue that for a number of reasons, but for one in particular, there has been this disproportionate emphasis on Muslim women and veiling. Uh, One of the reasons is that it is a visible marker of otherness and a visible marker of Muslimness that stands out as a symbol of Muslims and Islam. Uh, Another reason is that in a lot of conversations that really relate to that earlier idea I talked about, um, the clash of civilizations popularized by uh, Bernard Lewis and Samuel Huntington, um, the idea that western liberal democracies are more civilized than the quote-unquote muslim world Um, often revolves around this idea that western liberal democracies have more rights for women than muslim majority countries do and this is often used as a way to say that we in the west are more civilized than muslims and there's a growing and extensive literature on this particular topic, particularly following uh, the work of uh, Lila Ahmed uh, and Saba Mahmood um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there's really been an explosion uh, of work thinking about veiling and veiling practices in all its incredibly rich uh, complexity. But from a Western-centric perspective, uh, there is a tendency to frame veiling as something that is related to this idea of um, Muslims being too religious. Um, That Muslim women are somehow compelled by their religious tradition to veil. They don't have agency, they don't have choice, they're not able to choose for themselves. They are compelled by their religion, they're compelled by their imams, they're compelled by their husbands to wear a veil. And that this is then used as a sign to suggest that Uh, The Muslim world is somehow less modern, less progressive, less secular than the West. And of course, when one actually examines and looks into these things, uh, they quickly discover that it's a lot more complicated than that. And so in this chapter, I try to unpack some of the ways in which these images have not only been reproduced in a number of ways in the contemporary era and the post 9 11 era, but also how they've changed over time. Uh, going back to the 18th and 19th centuries, as I mentioned before. Uh, And one thing I'll mention specifically in that regard is um, a wonderful book by Joan Wallach Scott, came out in 2018 called Sex and Secularism. Uh, And Scott's done a lot of work on secularism. She also wrote a a fairly well-known book called The Politics of the Veil in 2007. Uh, A lot of her work focuses on France. uh, And this book, Sex and Secularism, also focuses on the French state, it looks at over a hundred years of different and competing conceptions of secularism. And what she shows in that book quite clearly is that it wasn't until the early 1990s that the idea of gender equality became linked to the concept of secularism. And since that time, you hear people in discussions about secularism, in discussions about secular values, often in relationship to Western values versus the Muslim world, invoke this idea that our secular values includes gender equality. But again, as Joan Wallace Scott nicely demonstrates, this is a relatively new idea in the history of Western cons- Conceptions and uses of the secular. And so in thinking about that, in making people aware of that particular genealogy, uh, I try to explore how this relatively recent association between secularism and gender equality tends to function when it comes to these clashes and controversies uh, involving Muslims in Western spaces. And I also try to show through a, very, uh, through a variety of case studies, how these understandings of secularism Religion, culture, gender, Islam will often change from state to state based on what is of interest to the people who are having a particular conflict uh, and the different players involved. And I can, I can get into that a little bit more as we go along, but those are some of the, the basic parameters.
0: slash NBN 50 to get 50%
2: off. Yeah. And you you move into uh, two really interesting uh, case studies, um, kind of examples of these dynamics at play in uh, Canada. Um, One uh, focusing on issues related to the niqab. um, And then one that's kind of uh, more broadly associated with symbols of religion, uh, but Islam, of course, playing a very central role in this. Um, so c- can you tell us a little bit about what these uh, situations involved and, um, you know, h- how does uh, secularism fit into understandings uh, within the, the Canadian context that you're talking about?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think I'll start with the uh, the question of, of, of the Niqab. Um, One thing that really, really got me attuned to this particular topic uh, was a controversy that started in early 2015, uh, specifically January 2015. Um, Now, that was an election year in Canada. Um, The Conservative government that was led by Stephen Harper, which was in power from 2006 until October of 2015, was in power for almost 10 years. uh, And there was a Federal election coming up at the end of 2015. Uh, That was the one that Justin Trudeau of the Liberal Party eventually won. And knowing that the Conservative Party was kind of on the ropes, they were down in the polls, uh, the government at the time seized upon a little known controversy um, going back to 2011. Uh, that government, the Conservative government of Canada, had put in place a restriction whereby Muslim women who were being sworn in for citizenship, for Canadian citizenship, uh, could not wear a niqab. right? So they had to have their entire face exposed um, if they were to uh, be sworn in for Canadian citizenship. In January of 2015, uh, a then permanent resident, uh, originally from Pakistan, named Zunira Isak, challenged this particular law. And the Harper government at the time seized upon this as a culture war, as a wedge issue. And they actually hired some really savvy political uh, consultants, uh, one that had a lot of success in the UK and in Australia, Lyndon Crosby, to really amp up this issue uh, as a culture war. And the way that the Harper government framed it, he stood up in the House of Commons. Uh, right, Canada's uh, you know equivalent to, to Congress and or the Senate, and he said that the niqab is something that is contrary to Canadian values and it violates the equality between men and women. Right, so he was invoking, as I mentioned before, this relatively new conception of secularism as a way to frame the niqab as something other, something outside the modern, Western, secular, civilized order. Now, this was ironic for a lot of people because Harper was not known uh, to champion women's rights. But nonetheless, it really became a popular flashpoint or wedge issue. And it was something that Justin Trudeau, at the time, the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, shot back against. And he said something to the effect that you can choose to like the niqab or dislike it, but this is very much a question of choice, a women's right to choose and that we have no right as Canadians uh, to weigh in on that matter. And throughout the entire election campaign, uh, again, this was from late January all the way until October, there was, in my estimation, no single bigger issue than the question of the kneecap. And what for me was so interesting about this is that I had barely heard any conversations about the niqab in Canada prior to that time. But all of a sudden, it was mobilized as this huge issue that everyone had an opinion on, despite most people not really understanding what the Nikab meant culturally, what it meant theologically, uh, and certainly not what it has meant historically over time in different times and places. And so the niqab affair very much resembled Um, What for me is a prototypical example of how veiling can become a culture war where a certain cultural or religious symbol gets utilized in order to relive or rehash older debates uh, over secularism versus religiosity, Islam versus the West. What are the lines between religion and culture, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, and so on and so forth. Uh, I can say a little bit more about that perhaps a little bit later. Um, but I do want to get to your uh, your second question there. Um, the case of Quebec is really, really interesting. So there have been four prominent bills uh, over the last 12 years or so, dating back to 2010, that involve veiling in particular and religious symbols in general. So. Without going into all the details, uh, Bill 94 was proposed in 2010, and this proposed putting restrictions on the niqab. This generated some controversy, uh, it failed to pass, and among other things, part of the backlash against this proposed Bill 94 uh, was the idea that this was xenophobic or Islamophobic. And fast forward to 2013, uh, the party at the time, the Palti Québécois, uh, which has a history of being an official separatist party, right, wanting to separate from the rest of Canada, uh, they proposed what they called the Charter of Secular Values. And this proposal wanted to limit or restrict a wide variety of quote-unquote religious symbols, including um, uh, veiling, including uh, uh, Jewish kippahs, including Sikh turbans. Um, And including small, uh, or or, pardon me, large, but not small crosses. And there was a lot of interesting debate and controversy uh, at the time, because if you go to Montreal, for example, there's a giant cross uh, on Mont Royal, which is a prominent hill uh, in Montreal. There's also uh, until very, very recently, uh, the presence of crosses in the Quebec legislature in uh, various legislatures and municip- uh, municipal buildings uh, in Quebec. And one of the ways in which um, people within Quebec and, and politicians responded to this, when people said, well, wait a minute, you're restricting all of these religious symbols, but you're keeping crosses up. And they would respond by saying, well, this is part of our cultural heritage and cultural patrimony, right? And so in that sense, the state was engaged in a process whereby crosses in certain places were deemed culture, whereas other religious symbols were deemed religious and therefore beyond the bounds of an acceptable secular object that could be permitted, uh, for example, when working in the public service as teachers, lawyers, judges, doctors, and so on and so forth. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit carried away with this, but the point I want to zero in on with the Charter of Secular Values is that it originally had this lengthy title that referred to the equality between men and women. And as many commentators at the time pointed out, this was clearly signaling towards veiling practice, right? It was was targeting Muslim women in particular. Fast forward to 2017, Bill 62 uh, went back to a targeted uh, restriction on the kneecap that also failed to pass. So these three bills, 2010, 2013, 2017, all failed to pass. Finally, in 2019, the freshly minted uh, Coalition Avenir Quebec, which is a sort of right-leaning government, they decided that they were going to go through uh, uh, with the full sweeping ban on religious symbols, or I should say restriction on religious symbols, again, from uh, various jobs in the public service. Uh, And they actually passed that bill. Uh, that year and is still the law that is in place today. And one thing that I analyzed in the book that's really, really interesting to me is that here you see a process whereby the initial attempt to restrict religious symbols specifically targeted Muslim women and the niqab in particular. There was backlash to that, so then they moved to a general religious restrictions ban. So the initial uh, uh, Bill 94 in 2010 gets framed as secularism and the need for gender equality. Then they move to okay, we're not targeting Muslim women. This is a general ban on all religious symbols and instead of talking about gender equality, they emphasize state neutrality. Then they go back to a targeted ban on Muslim women. There's backlash, claims of Islamophobia, xenophobia and so forth. So then finally they switch to a more general ban, right? So this Playing back and forth between defining secularism as upholding the values of gender equality on the one hand, and then shifting towards more general restrictions so as to maintain state neutrality was the kind of political process that was really fascinating to watch unfold in this province. And at the same time, it's reshaping or reimagining how we think of the boundaries between religion secularism and also culture because as you recall as I mentioned previously there were debates at the time over the status of crosses and whether or not that could be classified as culture as opposed to religious. One more point of comparison to mention in that regard I talk about briefly in the book uh, is a case study from uh, Reus in Spain in the uh, the state of Catalonia and back in 2010 there was a proposed ban upon uh, uh, the NICA. And it was proposed at the time by a um, conservative government uh, that identified as Catholic. And the main party in opposition to this proposed ban uh, was a secularist party. And for the secularist party, they weren't opposed uh, to this ban on any sort of religious grounds. But having a tradition Uh, where they were persecuted by the Franco dictatorship in Spain, they really didn't like the overreach uh, or over-securitization of the state. And so they sided with not having this kind of ban uh, on on the Nikon. And so there was a lot of sort of uh, conversation back and forth. uh, And eventually uh, they decided to ban all face coverings in public. And for good measure, they threw in no public nudity as one of these provisions as well. Um, and so, in the process of these debates being worked out, uh, you see this attempt to not appear to be Islamophobic or xenophobic. You see some of the rules changing uh, as to, you know, w- what is exactly being targeted here? Is it most the women or is it just all face coverings in general? And through that process, interestingly, the conservative government, the Catholic conservative government at the time, started to talk about. Uh, hijabs as opposed to niqabs as a part of Western secular values and our shared collective religious heritage, right? And so they were talking positively for the first time uh, about the hijab as something that we ought to include within our broader understanding of what is an acceptable religious symbol. Whereas the niqab, by contrast, was deemed to be culture, right? It was something that certain cultures did. It wasn't a part of our religious values, and we need to push that to the outside. And so what's really interesting to me is that these particular battles, which are often fought over other things, right, contests between different political parties, in the case of Quebec and Canada, it is often argued that these controversies are at least in part drummed up because bids for Quebec's uh, uh, separatism. Right, which go back to the 1970s, uh, in, mid 19, in the mid-1990s, Quebec almost separated from Canada, and there's not a lot of steam for that anymore. And many people argue that those desires by Quebec to draw a line in the sand and distinguish themselves from the rest of Canada are now often playing out in terms of culture wars that most often involve Muslims and Muslim women in particular. And so in a way, you could argue that this culture wars, this targeting of Muslim women, in some sense, reflects deeper battles over Quebec's desire for national autonomy and sovereignty over and against the rest of Canada. And whatever else you might say about people's perceptions of Muslims, Islam, veiling Muslim women, and so forth, it's also caught up in these much, much broader issues. And teasing out how this works in these different case studies is part of what I try to do in this chapter and in the broader uh, broader book at large.
2: Yeah, and uh, you you move uh, in the the following chapter to uh, questions about new atheists and uh, issues of of, of Muslim, ex-Muslims, who've become atheists. Um, For those who maybe aren't familiar with this movement, can you tell us a little bit about some of the main figures of the new atheist movement, some of their main positions, perhaps, and then... um, you know, there's a very strong strain of anti-Muslim sentiment uh, in, in their rhetoric. So maybe uh, let us know a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so
1: as I mentioned uh, previously, um, you know, d- during my my undergrad and, and, and graduate work, uh, the new atheists really came into prominence, right? So this is around the mid-2000s, uh, and they remain, I think, quite prominent and popular really up into the, the mid-2010s, uh, more or less. And uh, as previously mentioned, these thinkers, uh, including the most prominent among them, uh, the famed uh, Oxford evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins, uh, wrote a best-selling book uh, called uh, The God Delusion. Sam Harris, going back to 2004, wrote a book called The End of Faith. Uh, The late Christopher Hitchens, 2007, wrote a book called God Is Not Great. And today, a lesser known book that was popular back then, a little bit more academic, Um, Was called uh, Breaking the Spell by Daniel Dennett. And there's a number of other figures associated with the New Atheism. But the basic idea uh, behind the New Atheism and their own popularity uh, was framed in popular media, in popular culture, as a response to, on the one hand, the perception of a more intrusive, overly theological, evangelical Christianity in the United States, represented by the George W. Bush administration on the one hand, and also the perception after the 9-11 attacks uh, that Islamic fundamentalism was a threat to Western civilization, and the ways in which these particular thinkers, popular thinkers, uh, framed their atheism was in very much sort of black and white, good versus evil terms. Uh, You can see this in the title of Harris's book, for example, right, The End of Faith. And figures like Harris, who are still fairly prominent today, would argue during that time that it was not only important for them to valorize non-religious or atheist identities, but they also wanted to promote a version of atheism or militant atheism that would help bring religion to an end. Uh, There's a line from Harris's uh, 2006 book called Letter to a Christian Nation, where he says something to the effect that let us be honest in the fullness of time, in the war between science and religion, one side is really gonna win and the other side is going to lose. And they soften their stance a little bit later on and i will get to that uh, momentarily, but I think it's important to, to really put a button on the fact that there was this very sort of manichaean good versus evil framing that informed a lot of ideas about popular atheism during that time. And because it was so, controversial. Because it was so sensual, uh, sensationalistic, it, of course, helped to get them uh, a lot of popular attention. Uh, and this really coincided with the rise of social media. And so they were, in many respects, um, early adopters of YouTube platforms, YouTube debates, where you would often hear or rather read titles like, you know, Christopher Hitchens owns stupid Christian women in debate and that sort of thing, right? And so The new atheists, um, or the way I talk about them uh, in the book, uh, were very much interested in promoting a version of atheism uh, as one that valorized science and reason as something that they hoped more and more people would adopt, and that this could lead to the idea of, you know, an end of faith over time. But as they engaged with more people, uh, as I think they came up against a lot of brick walls following that, that very sort of black and white understanding, uh, they came to realize that this particular line of attack has a fairly limited purchase. And so they started to moderate their positions. And you saw this first and foremost with Sam Harris. Uh, who had a debate turned into a book with uh, a self-identified liberal British Muslim, Majid Nawaz, in 2014, um, called, uh, I'm blanking on the title right now, um, but it has something to do with Islam and the future of tolerance uh, in the title. And it was in that particular book that Harris stopped saying that we need to combat religion, that we need to combat Islam in particular, but we need to work with moderate Muslims, and we need to elevate moderate Muslims who embody secular values as a way to bring in as many Muslims as possible, and therefore take away what he perceived to be the dominant sentiment amongst Muslims in Islam, which, not surprisingly, in his estimation, uh, revolved around this this idea that Islam is violent and barbarous, uh, intolerant, and so on and so forth. And so part of what I do in that chapter is I, I trace some of the shifts and changes in new atheist rhetoric that really occurred from you know roughly 2004 to 2014, which marks those, those two books I just mentioned uh, by Sam Harris. Now, crucially, during that same period of time, we saw social media and social media platforms really come into their own. And I also talk about movement atheism or atheist movements and how prior to the rise of social media, uh, atheist and non-religious movements, while certainly in existence, here you can think of organizations like um, American Atheists, which dates back to 1963, if I'm getting that date correctly, um, you had a number of organizations that were regularly demonized, not well understood, but tended to reflect a fairly consistent set of ideas and ideals, uh, atheist uh, organizations would often frame themselves as secular, um, trying to move away from the label of atheist and its negative connotations. Uh, and they tr- and they tended to adhere, broadly speaking, to a certain set of secular liberal values. And they would often identify with other groups, racialized groups, LGBTQ communities, in the sense that they wanted to frame their struggle for greater representation and greater rights as very much in league with uh, um racialized groups, and LGBTQ groups. But one interesting thing that we see occur in the growing uh, uh, literature on secularism and non-religion, which is really a phenomenon uh, that took off in the uh, late 2000s and and certainly continues into the present, is that a lot of people who have come to identify as atheist and non-religious have not latched on to those identities in relation to a a brick-and-mortar secular or atheist organization, right, where they're, you know, they're meeting in public spaces and necessarily, you know, reading the same books or having the same conversations with a limited group of people. Instead, you see a lot more online communities from all kinds of different cultural backgrounds increasingly saying, I don't identify with religion, I'm a secularist, I'm an atheist, I'm an ex-Christian, I'm an ex-Muslim, and the kind of Politics that goes along with that appears to be a lot more diffuse, a lot fuzzier than the stereotypical secular liberal associations that atheism tended to have prior to the rise of social media, and this is also true with a lot of ex-Muslim communities. And maybe I can get into this a little bit more if you have any specific questions about a question. But one one final thing I'll say on this particular point is that when it comes to ex-Muslims and ex-Muslim communities, the way in which these controversies in Western uh, spaces often get framed is that for the most part, liberal media, liberal spaces in Western countries tend to present this version or vision of Islam as very monolithic, Uh, as very liberal. It's sort of a a good and warm and fuzzy thing that we can assimilate into our broader understanding of liberal multiculturalism. And anything that doesn't look exactly like that, well, that's either not true Islam or it's some aberration, and we can just sort of push that outside the fold. Well, for a lot of uh, ex-Muslims and people who may have had a very bad experience Uh, as Muslims, uh, whether in countries like Saudi Arabia or perhaps growing up in certain communities in Canada or the United States, uh, this was seen to be something that was offensive to them, something they didn't identify with, uh, something that they wanted to push back against. And people who identified on the political or cultural right would often provide a platform for ex-Muslims to say really, really bad things about Muslims and Islam. And a lot of self-identified ex-Muslims would grab onto this because this was the community, this was the platform uh, that they were given in order to voice their grievances, often very uh, legitimate grievances uh, in growing up and experiencing fairly repressive uh, uh, religious practices within particular uh, communities. And so the case study I look at throughout this chapter involves a, uh, a podcaster named Aina of the podcast Polite Conversations. Uh, she's of Pakistani heritage, uh, born and raised in an American compound in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, moved to Toronto uh, in her early 20s, and uh, as I mentioned, started this podcast in 2016. And I can say a little bit more uh, about the podcast, but I use her as a device throughout this chapter to look at an example of an individual who describes herself as an ex-Muslim and who identified with a more militant atheist identity when she started her podcast in 2016, but then after Trump was elected, very quickly shifted away from what she saw as these anti-Muslim xenophobic trends within ex-Muslim communities that were latching on to Trump, latching on to a lot of the uh, negative things that we tend to associate with that administration and it called forth a crisis of identity for uh, Aina. She would often say things like, well, I became an atheist and an ex-Muslim because I believed in secular values. I believed in equality between uh, men and women. I believed Uh, you know, in rights for the uh, LGBTQ community, and so on and so forth. And what I'm seeing from a lot of my fellow atheists and ex-Muslims is a lot of far-right talking points. And I'm confused. I don't know what this label means anymore. And so I really wanted to dig into the complexities and nuances of this identity crisis that this podcaster has had in her now almost six years of being on the air in trying to work out the boundaries of a secular atheist and ex-Muslim identity in relation to these shifting cultural trends and culture wars, particularly as they play out in online spaces.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting case too. And I think for, for anyone who's interested in thinking about issues of categorization or classification in the study of religion, this is like a really uh, unique case study to, to, to draw into that conversation. Um, there's a, there's a lot of detail, of course, in the book that, that we can't get into, but, uh, I I do want to congratulate you again. It's, it's very readable. Uh, it's, it synthesizes a lot of work in very clear and concise ways. Um, so congrats on a, on a great book, Matt. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you, you mentioned your, uh, some of the stuff you're working on right now, um, earlier, but I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your vision for your, your current research.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, so I'm I'm under contract uh, right now uh, for a book that is tentatively titled Islam According to Google News, How Religion Shapes the Way We Talk About Media. And for me, this really goes back to uh, work that I did during my PhD dissertation, or I should say builds on work I did during my PhD dissertation when looking at Jürgen Habermas and his theory of religion in the public sphere. And one of the things that really... Frustrated me, I guess, when it came to how Habermas talked about religion in the public sphere is that he would talk about different religions, including uh, uh, Islam um, in relation to what I call a liberal Protestant model and the basic idea without going into too many details was that liberal conceptions of religion, that is to say, religion is something that you keep relatively in the private sphere. It is something that is believed, something that you have faith in, something that is very much a product of your personal choice. Um, That is a measurement that he tended to use and apply to all religions. And what happened, or, or, or what happens in that process is that you really lose the immense complexity and specificity of different religious communities, in this case, uh, Muslim communities, how they negotiate their Muslim identities, both in Muslim-majority countries and in Western spaces in incredibly rich and complex ways that are always changing and always evolving over time. And so what I thought would be a really interesting and important thing to do with this book is to try to lay out in fairly broad terms what exactly we mean or what exactly we talk about when we talk about Muslims and Islam in a Western context. And here I'm thinking about, you know, newspapers, news media, popular culture, movies, these sorts of things. We're definitely not talking about complex theological ideas. We're not talking about debates and disputes between different Muslim communities. We're not even talking about differences between, say, uh, Sunni and Shia communities. We tend to be talking about fairly stereotypical ideas or tropes, stereotypes, buzzwords like jihad, for example, veiling comes into the picture among a host of other ideas and interests. And those ideas tend to carry the conversation. They tend to get most attention. They tend to be sensationalistic. And I'm interested in this book in basically exploring what are some of the implications of that, right? How do we frame Islam in popular Western media and what gets left out in the process? And so those are the, the two things that I, I really want to explore and grapple with uh, in this book.
2: Great. It sounds, sounds like an awesome project, Matt, and I wish you uh, the best of luck. And thanks for taking time to talk about this wonderful book. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. That was my conversation with Matt Sheedy about Owning the Secular, Religious Symbols, Culture Wars, Western Fragility, published with Rutledge in 2021. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.